Welcome to Mastering Agility. If you want to listen to authentic conversations with the most inspiring guests, find like-minded people in the Mastering Agility Discord community or both online and face-to-face events, this is the platform for you. Grab a drink, sit back, and join professional scrum trainers Sander Dorr, Jim Sammons, and their guests in an all-new episode. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are listening to us from. I've got two of my best colleagues with me today. So, Sunder, how are you doing today? I'm always good when I see you guys. What about yourself? Can't complain. It's been a busy week, but a week of learning and at least the people are telling me it's helping and that they enjoy our chats and our work together. So that, that that's about as much as I can ask for in any given week. Oh, good. Good stuff. And, and I'm excited to talk to Fred. So uh, we have Fred Deichler with us today, and I can't wait to get into these topics because the things I think you're going to talk about are near and dear to my heart, and they're the type of things I'm doing each week. So Fred, will introduce yourself to the audience. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and it's great to be here with with y'all. Um, Fred Deichler. I'm a Scrum Master Agile Coach uh, based out of America. So, it, you know, nice and early for me. Um, but I love, you know, working with working with teams. Um, I'm a big, um, what do I say? I like learning new information. So I'm constantly reaching out to people, learning things. I'm more of a audio learner than a written learner. So even though I have a stack of books behind me, um, I don't pull them out as often as I should. Um, but um, I've been growing with the Agile community for about last two years of like of getting out there uh, with speaking at conferences, which is how I met Sonder, um, and then kind of making the rounds with conferences and, and talking. And I found it's really hitting my a sweet spot in me. Like it's something that gets me out of bed Monday morning. And I like to, you know, to wrap, to bring it back to teams. I like to do that for teams too. It's like, get them excited about coming to work on Monday morning. You know, it's not about foosball tables and donuts. It's about, you know, working together, you know, with clear direction and knowing what's expected of you um, and getting that autonomy to do what you need to do, get to get the job done. And so I always like advocating for those things um, on teams. Something that you mentioned kind of struck me. Um, it's the uh, the mentality of looking forward to go back to work. Isn't it terrible? I'm curious about your opinion, your observation. Isn't it terrible that people are working to look forward to the weekend as if that's so much better than having to go to work? It feels so dreadful. It feels like such a heavy existence if you always have to keep grinding every day until you finally have those two week, two days off. And then after those two days, you have to do it over again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's that old adage that says, if you love what you're doing, you'll never work a day in your life. And when I got into agility, that, that really uh, rung true with me because I was a, I was a manager in my past life, managing um, engineering teams. I worked repairing computers and all those did have those those tenants center center that you're talking about which is like not always looking forward to work on mondays you know really looking for that weekend the weekend was never long enough um and i don't like being in that headspace and i don't want the people i work with to be in that headspace if, if there's anything i can do to help with that environment yeah have either of you ever heard of the the sunday scaries no no tell me about them no, your quizzical looks tell me no. So I, I hadn't either. And I bumped into somebody a couple of years ago now, and they were talking about the Sunday scaries. Like, I should know what that means. And 
it's that sense of dread and fear and anxiety that sits it sets in your belly like you know mid sunday afternoon knowing that the next day's monday the weekend's almost over and she's like you don't feel like that i go no i haven't felt like that in years but once it had a name i'm like i used to i remember when i was in what i call traditional it and i'm doing air quotes for the listeners like when I was in traditional IT, the Sunday scaries were a very real thing. I didn't call them that, but you know, you you just didn't want to go into work Monday because you knew it was waiting for you. And then once I got to a certain position in the company, the weekends started to just look like Friday afternoon just extended for two more days because I was getting calls and texts and emails and angry this and nervous this from engineers and customers and all that. But yeah, I think it's great that that you found something, Fred, where you don't dread coming to work on Mondays. And one question I had for you is, how did you get over the hurdle of speaking for the first time? Because I know a lot of people in our audience and even our own dear, dear Marge, um, we've talked about that before. Like, how do you, how'd you get over it the first time? How'd it go? I think uh, I'd have to go back by 15 years. The first time I, I spoke, I was, uh, it was almost, it was very similar to a, um, a transformation project, but it was back when I was working for um, Best Buy. For those of you who know that in the United States, we had rolled out um, Geek Squad and it was this combined idea. Geek Squad's first computers, and then they added in their home theater into the same brand, and so it's very much uh, like a transformation. And I, I being an ambassador for the brand, had to talk in front of uh, a lot of gentlemen and ladies who spent their day. Um, setting up televisions and running wires and walls and doing all this complex hands-on technical stuff. And I was this computer nerd in front of them explaining why they wanted to be part of the culture that I held near and dear. I mean, I have stuff on my wall you can't see, but of the Geek Squad culture, this thing that really resonated with me. And I just got up there and did it. And I was I was nervous as hell. But when I got done, so many people like thanked me for the knowledge that I had shared with them. And it was from that point, I started getting a, a little bit more comfortable talking in front of groups of people that I didn't know. Um, I did it, quite a few talks at, pre, at other companies, you know, like a Friday happy hour talk on a project that we got done. Um, I still have some recordings of those I'd go back to um, where I just love being on stage and to make it more resonant uh, with what you're, what you're asking, Jim is I remember I was driving around listening to a podcast. It was the scrum master toolbox podcast in Vasco. He was advertising for the scrum master online scrum master summit or no. Yes. Online scrum master summit in 2022. And I'm like, you know, I've been doing agile scrum for a while at this point. I was doing some cool stuff. I thought with automation and Jira and Slack, I'm like, you know, I'm just going to apply to this. I like talking. I think I want, I think I got a story I can tell. And I applied and I got in and it was just like, okay. Um, so that was a little bit nervous. And then I took that and I, ca- and I built on that too. I applied to scan agile where, you know, Sandra and I met and um, they let me in to do that same talk. And I was so nervous. And I think one thing afterwards, um, some feedback I got from the uh, some friends in the audience um, was in the first few minutes, I told my audience people I was very nervous. 
Mm. And they then they're like, it probably let some air into the room that just like said, okay, he can he can um yeah. he can do his thing. Um, but that's like kind of the long story. Yeah, that, that creates the empathy, right? Yeah, there's an old salesman techniques under um that I learned, and it's about creating the human nature when you're talking to somebody. Like when you were coming in as their when I was going on visits with our salespeople, um, people knew it. They were ready. It was on their calendar. And they were like, great, here come more salesmen or here come my partners. Maybe it was selling into an existing client, but you could do something to disarm them and to humanize yourself. And it could be something as, you know, saying, oh, I totally forgot my my pen. Can I borrow your pen or something? That's one of what one of the old school like sales books will be. Or it could be just when you're doing the meet and greet, making some sort of self-deprecating comment to make it okay to be yourself. And I think that's probably what the audience is reflecting to you and saying, okay, you know, Fred admitted he was nervous and that made everybody else be, have empathy for you, whether they realize it or not, their, their brain said, wow, at least he is aware of it. And at least he is um, confident enough to vocalize it. And I think that goes so far with people. Sunder, what do you think? That's proper leadership. Yeah, that's proper leadership. That's that's where leadership starts, right? And it's not just that, but it also creates, uh, it, it removes the internal conversation that people can have. Like if, if people see your attitude or they think, oh, that's a horrible speaker or Jesus, he's arrogant. But if you air it like this, there is no room to to interpret this in a different way. He, no, he's not, uh, He's he, he looks nervous, but he is nervous because that's exactly what he said. So, right, like kink. Let's give him some slack here, and it makes it so much easier for people to resonate with. I would bet that none of us can imagine anybody we've ever seen on any type of stage, business, professional, or entertainment, that would not say they were nervous at some point. I'm still nervous for all these talks. I was nervous this week when I did a talk on a subject that I felt I knew a lot about. I was still nervous because yeah. a lot of people they're putting their time into it, so they are trusting you with their most precious asset, which is time. You cannot get time back. And so that's where I feel like I have a responsibility to the people mm -hmm. to do best I can. Um, but you know, that transparency goes a long, goes a long way. I'm curious about this as well, Fred, like last year in Skanagel, I don't want to keep referring to Skanagel too much, uh, even though I think it's one of the best conferences that I attended last year, uh, shameless marketing, but it had a proper lineup as well with Diana Larson, Henrik Nieberg, Jürgen Apollo, Chris Stone, Artur Marginari, all those people were there. Super experienced speakers. They've done this hundreds of times. Uh, they know their stuff, right? They, like The way that they deliver their talks is vastly different than we do it. And to me, that creates both imposter syndrome as well as an extra layer of nerve coming to it. How did you experience that? Uh, 100%. I remember seeing Diana Larson. I have her books. I saw her. I knew she lives in Oregon. I live in Oregon. And I was scared to go talk to her because she's Diana freaking Larson. She wrote the book. Exactly. On it. She wrote the book on retrospectives. And the funny story is like, you know, like we look at 2023 for me and my journey as, as a speaker, I went to um, quite a few. I spoke in person twice did like four or five online ones and also i went to a conference just as a participant and in person and one thing i learned 
uh, was that the speakers, they're just like us in the audience. They're humans too. And so this, the story for the Diana that makes sense is like, I saw her a few weeks later in, um, in Portland at the Global Scrum Gathering in Portland. And she said, Fred, why didn't you come say hi to me in Finland? <laughs> and I was like, Geez. and so now I have a little bit of relationship. But she's so relaxed. It's not, you know, I can chat with her on, on Slack or through LinkedIn. I know she'll respond to me. She's just another person. But yeah, that, that imposter syndrome is, it's, it's going to be there, you know, because I think it's because I care so much about it um, that I want to feel like. I'm worthy of the time that people are giving me or to share drinks with the speakers, like the speaker's dinner. It was just such a fun event to see everyone else who's, um, oh, that was so good. Who, who's putting out their ideas. So Dave Snowden commented a couple episodes ago about, he, he just dislikes these motivational speakers, right? Who come to the conferences, they do the circuit and they're so over-prepared and, and all this. And I'm curious if, Either of you have seen people like that? Because I've, after he said that, I was thinking, because one person immediately jumped out in my, in my past history, but there's been a few other conferences that I've been to where there was a, usually a keynote or like an afternoon keynote, right? Like somebody right after lunch in the big room, whatever it is. And like, I've enjoyed some of those sessions, hearing about a sports person talk about their life or hearing some other motivational speaker talk about an experience and almost like a storyteller narrative. But what struck me is I don't remember any of that shit. Like I remember that they talked, but I don't even remember what point they made, but I can remember the points that Esther Derby was making when I watched her talk about, you know, retrospectives and things at a conference we were both speaking at. And like, I remember other people that made a connection with me for some on some level. So I'm curious about this motivational speaker thing. What do you think? Is that a, have you seen it? Is it a problem? Yeah. Um, What's your thoughts? Oddly enough, Esther Derby is going to be the keynote for this year at Scan Agile. So I've got another question for you, Fred, in a minute for that. Um, I think it's a, it's a fine balance also for organ uh, for the organization behind conferences, right? Because as much as I love Dave Snowden, I think he's super eloquent. I think I sucked up to, to him sufficiently during our episode. Uh, he's really smart. He's, he's provides good content and beyond good content. Um, it resonates with me, but if, if you have to fill multiple days with these kind of talks, people will start to zone out at least with the audience that we have. It's too heavy, too mentally heavy. So you need these, mm. these motivational speakers, the more entertaining, the more light on the mind, because else people will just drop off. It's too much. Mm. That's my opinion. That's a great thought. Fred, what do you think? I will say like, I, yeah, there's lots of that. I agree with you, Jim, around like the, like, I, I remember being entertained quite a bit by some motivational speakers at these interludes, you know, or opening and closing, but what they said, I don't know, but there's one that did stand out to me. I saw last year, uh, named Eric, why am I, why an He's a blind person who doesn't allow his disability to get in the way of it. Like he actually kayaked the Grand Canyon as a blind person, like with a bunch of other people, which was like this amazing thing. But the thing, the singular thing that, that stood out to me in that talk, he just had this one section. It's like, it was about attitude mm-hmm. and it's about, you know, cl- you're climbing a mountain. It's like, are you a climber or are you a camper? 
And the climbers are the people that go out and they're the people making new ideas, putting themselves out there, experimenting, all these things. And the campers are the people who just like sit back and watch everything else happen. I can't remember everything he said about that, but it's like, you know, I had this moment sitting on this. I'm like, I'm a climber. I'm not climbing as fast as other people, but I'm out there trying to share my knowledge, my experience, my passions, my fears with other people. And that's the one, I think, motivational speaker that something stood out to me. It was just like this short segment, but um, but the rest are a blur. Yeah. Yeah, I think you you both make excellent points. And I think what I'm taking away from this is that people who organize events, conferences, workshops, you know, retreats, whatever, they almost have to take like a restaurant's approach to to it. You can't just have ribeye after porterhouse after fish like you know if you're going to have a seven course meal and people are going to be there for two and a half hours you've got to balance heavy things and light things and there needs to be a beginning and a middle and an end um and i and same with books you know there's there's build up there's a climax there you know there there's an epilogue all this so i think that's a really good reflection about so the two kind of patterns I'm hearing is people who put on events need to kind of balance everything. So don't hold it against them if some of the motivational speakers maybe don't make a huge difference in your life. And then I think your point, Fred, is you're agreeing with me that you don't always remember what they say, but even that day or week, it might have been a really great story. And some of them do stick out. Like I I have a couple similar uh, memories of motivational speakers, too, that I still remembered, you know, 15 years later. Yeah. I like the analogy of the books because I have a little stack of three books randomly over here that just piled up. And one of them is The Innovator's Solution by Clay Christensen. Fairly dry. I would say that's on the um, Dave Snowden end. Then the top one is the Bill- Escaping the Bill Trap by Melissa Perry. Mm-hmm. It's a combination of entertaining and very useful. And then you got Creativity Inc. by Ad Catmull, which is... Mm connecting that to all the Pixar stuff, that's more on the entertaining stuff, but still highly useful. And I think that's kind of what Dave Snowden was referring to as well. You got the motivational speaker, but also more on the academic level. And it's it's the same with books. Yeah. I, I could not read like 10 times or 10 consecutive books like The Innovator's Solution. It's, it's too dry for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's why some of the books that I gravitate to, whether they're audio books, to Fred's earlier point, or, or physical books, are the ones that tell a narrative, tell a story. They have what they call a business fable, but they connect it to ideas. And then some of them will kind of draw a hard line in the book. Like I'm thinking of Patrick Lencioni's model is the first third of the book is a business fable. It's a mostly true names have been changed, all that to tell a story. And then the second half or two thirds of the book is, okay, here's all the concepts you just read about. And you can easily connect the two because you still remember the names and the events and and the actions in the story. The goal is the same way. The seminal book by Eli Goldratt. I like learning that way. Um, I struggle to pick up like thinking fast and slow or, you know, Reinertsen's book. I've read them cover to cover, but I struggle through them because they're just jam packed with, complexity and insights and things and you you can read four pages and you need to go take a break whereas i listen to 
the goal for the second or third time when I was on a, a vacation in Costa Rica and it was great. Like it was, um, it was like listening to a story that was also teaching you things every, yeah. every so often. Coming back to a Diane or to a, a Sir Derby, Fred question about that. because we were just talking about, uh, last year, uh, Diane Larson. Now this year, Esther Derby is going to be there. Same book. So same level of, uh, uh, stardom. Is there a difference compared to last year? Like did the, the experience of last year, because going there and now connecting to Diana Larson, being there, being present, doing the actual talk, does that change the way that you would approach, for instance, Esther this year? Yeah, I'm, I would say no fear, and it's just not about the that that one. I would put the entire year into into focus of 2023. The number of people that I had a privilege of getting to know, like uh, Trisha Broderick, um, Pratik Singh, um, and a bunch of other people I'm probably forgetting. I've humanized these people, and uh, the other thing I will say is like listening to to you, and then also Martine Dalman this last year talking about like the trials and tribulations of writing a book. It also that humanizes it. So everyone who's published a book, they went through all those all those things. I'm not writing a book, but there's these lines I'm starting to see where, you know, to get back to like Jim said, like they're all humans too. And so like I'll probably have a little bit of starstruck or hesitation. Uh, but chances that I'll run into her again in person, I might never do it again. And I'll kick myself for not doing it. And there's, you know, you mentioned Jurgen Apollo. Uh, he spoke last year at the conference we were at. I missed his talk because I had a, I had a conflict, and months and months and months went by that I had lived with regret for not seeing this talk um, on his unfixed model. And then uh, just recently, he gave the talk at a online meetup. I watched the recording. I got out of it. I was able to relieve this burden, this stress, this regret that I had. Because I'm like, oh, I have that now. Which is like, to bring a little full, cir full circle, like, I love the fact, like, a lot of people go to conferences or talks, like, you know, myself, will do it multiple times, give multiple people the opportunity to see it, interact with it. And I love these meetups that are recording things and sharing things out freely. Uh, it's just, it. I don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. And, you know, to what you said, Sander, to kind of wrap back to the beginning is like, I'll go say hi to her. Heck, maybe at the speaker's dinner, I will. Of course. <laughs> but that's, that's the part. And you guys weren't there. Um, I recorded an episode with Tom Siebenach as well about public speaking, about a journey that we've made. And I think these, it's not about speaking itself, but it's also about like these speaker dinners, meeting up and connecting, networking with other speakers and all the stuff around it makes it so a enjoyable but so useful as well to be there to talk to other people to learn from their experience for instance like guys like chris stone and arthur marginari arthur is one of the, the the most entertaining speakers i've seen so far he's so good he's he, and he's such a nice guy as well and that's what i really appreciate about it. speaking of skanagel then i'm gonna slowly i'm gonna stop probably gonna refer to it a couple of times but uh, just more shameless self-marketing, we have an actual physical booth over there this year at the Scan Agile Conference in Helsinki. We will be doing live podcasting as well as I'm speaking there myself. Fred's going to be there. Jim is not going to be there, unfortunately. We need to fix that, dude. We need to fix more of live podcasting together. Uh, but uh, that's... This is a conspiracy. Are you cheating on me with Fred? And Arthur? Is there some sort of like crazy 
German video going to be formed over there? Like, I feel completely cut out now. Probably. To okay. complete the whole German video thing, that's why we invited Marge. Right. Okay. Hot, hot take there. Yes. Our German chief of editing. <laughs> she's going to be there as well. Like, we, we got to stand. We got the booth. Uh, we're going to be doing live podcasting. We have the guests invited. Uh, probably going to do a panel with Fred, with Arthur, with uh, with Chris Stone, with the whole, the whole lineup. Is going to be there. So if you're listening, you're going to be at Helsinki. Come and say hi, get some stickers, get some merch. And I will say, I'm going to add one more plug to this is if you aren't able to make the Helsinki and you live in Germany on Friday, March 8th, I will be in Dresden speaking at a conference about AI and agile. Um, so come on out to Dresden and come say hi to me. No, no podcast recording. Uh, so you, <laughs> Uh, 34 minutes was the 24. time to AI. Not bad. <laughs> Not bad, guys. All right. Um, so <laughs> I wonder, um, I was talking to another colleague the other day, and we probably all know the let me Google that for you link. I want to create a let me AI that for you. And so that when somebody asks me for help to do something super simple, I can be like, here, let me. Let me do that. And it just drops it right into ChatGPT's search box or something. It's kind of the new version of there's an app for that, right? There's an AI tool for that. Yes. <laughs> there is a link. There already is a service called there, or at least a hashtag called there's an AI for that. I've seen it out there. But we need a, a, a punchy acronym like let me, yeah, let me AI that for you or let me generate that for you. I don't know. Absolutely. I mean, I, uh, you know, my company I'm with now, we just, um, they're opening up the gates to AI. And one of the uh, senior leader is, you know, concerned about, you know, the time, the investment, et cetera. So they want us to like create an experiment around its usage. And I was really struggling with them. Like, it's like asking if I want to create an experiment about using Excel. I'm like, it's just, it's a tool in, in my, in my toolbox. I mean, I literally used it to help me improve a graphic I was making for a presentation. I'm like, Hey, in Excel, how do I do this thing? I want to do it. It's like, here's how you do it. Um, and so like struggling through this, like this experimentation thing and, and, you know, getting more into, into AI. Uh, one thing I've realized talking about it a bunch is that the people who use it on a daily basis, they're still in that bleeding edge space. Um, not even early adopters. I think it still is bleeding yes. edge. And if you're hearing it from everyone, it's because you're, they're also in that bleeding edge space. Um, it's probably getting closer to the early adopter. Like if you think yeah. about the product adoption curve, but we are so far at the, at the beginning. So I think the, <laughs> let me AI that for you, um, can, well, could be funny. Um, it might also be a teaching moment for someone to say, oh, that's how you do it. You demystified it for me. Yeah. I had a conversation with a colleague the other day and I'm very curious how the whole AI thing is going to go. Cause it feels, it almost feels like the whole dot com bubble, like early two thousands, right? Like everyone's hyped to get aboard the AI train. And I feel like in not, not too, in, not too far in the, into the near future, there's going to be a collapse of the whole AI farming at this point, but you refer to toolbox, speaking of toolbox, one of your talks that you're submitted to a lot of conferences to talk about Zelda's guide to agile. Tell us more about that. Yeah, absolutely. That does come from a toolbox. Um, and it's really this toolbox approach. And what at the heart of it, it's like the scrum guide doesn't tell you everything you need to do to be successful 
in Scrum. We have Scrum Master in our title, but it doesn't have all the tools in it. And in going out there and researching different tools, like I add them into my tool belt, my toolbox. And so what this story is in the um, video game thing, theme of Zelda is a problem that a that approached me. And it was approached to me in a very interesting way. Um, I was talking to a PO once and a product owner, and they said this thing. They said, I want to do a new experiment every sprint. I'd worked with this product owner for a while, and he was always very open to ideas. And for him to come say that to me, I was blown away. I'm like, this is that nirvana I wanted to get to, where he realizes that we don't have to deliver everything all at once. We can put out a small amount of work and get feedback and iterate. I'm like, this is awesome. And then he proceeded to show me the favorite chart from product ma project managers, a Gantt chart about how we're going to achieve these experiments each sprint. And um, I threw up a little bit in my mouth, but I sat back after a while and I said, you know, this is a customer of mine, a client we'll say, who has a need. How can I empower them to meet the need they want, which is a new experimenting sprint, because I knew the Gantt charts were not going to do it. And so over the weekend, I, I thought about this and really came down to three practices that I've been researching that I could apply together, bundled up to give to this PO and this team to achieve this goal. And once I got to the number three, I realized, oh, Triforce. And so it's our, it gives it power when you give it a name. And what this was, how I went from the Gantt chart is I, there's, there's three specific things I'd been looking at at that time. Um, the first one was Monte Carlo forecasting. It's, you know, the concept of what you have done, giving you a probabilistic idea of what you might do. You know, when we write up Gantt charts, they're very deterministic. Like we've done 14 points per sprint. We're always going to do 14 points. Maybe we'll do 15, whatever it might be, but it's very deterministic, but it's also it doesn't factor in um, the variability of the world. And so it's probable with Monte Carlo forecasting, you know, we're talking about thousands to millions of simulations of what you have done to give you confidence intervals of what you might do. So instead of saying um, we're going to do 14 because we've always done, always done 14 um, points or stories, we'll say, um, I could say, you know, there's an 85% chance, 85% probability that we're going to get 11 stories done. And you know, that's something people can start to wrap their wrap their mind around. So instead of just basing this, like doing 14 stories per sprint, it's like, okay, we're going to do 11. Um, so that help with the sizing of these experiments. That's that first piece of the Triforce is that Monte Carlo estimation. This, you know, that's great, you know, but as we know, teams don't always deal with um, 100% perfect stuff. Sometimes there's bugs that come up. Sometimes there's other requests that come in. And at the time, the second corner of the Triforce uh, was is a part of evidence-based management. And the part in there that I like to pull out from there, which, you know, evidence-based management, this goal-setting framework based around value, which, which I love, and it's all over uh, scrum.org. And um, what... There's a, it has four key value areas. And the, the one that really resonated with me about this problem is the key value area of ability to innovate. So I took a look at that. I said, okay, what is our innovation rate? 
you know, our mix of improvements versus defects. And so for this one, you know, say we're we doing 11 stories per, per sprint. If we looked back at the past three to six sprints, we could say, you know, about 75% of our PBIs or deliveries are improvements. 25% are this other stuff. So now I could take that 11 stories and say, okay, 75% of that, that's the size of the experiment. So we're talking about seven to eight stories. That's if we can fit an experiment within that confines, there's a 85% probability we're going to get that thing done and be able to start learning from it. And that's that planning side of this Triforce. And you'll play, everyone, every plan is great mm. until you get punched in the face. I think it's a Mike Tyson quote. Everyone has a plan. They so get punched in the face. The power mm -hmm. of the Scrum Master. One of my favorites. <laughs> well, their powers is um, how do we help people on a daily basis? And so I took a look at the at our daily scrum um, that we, we do every day. And that's where like flow metrics led into there and specifically aging whip. It's this new concept I hadn't looked at at that time. And I'm like, how about how do we focus around finishing things? You know, stop starting, start finishing. And so by combining those powers of those three things, um, Monte Carlo forecasting the fair what we might do. EBM ability to innovate to figure out like what's that mix of innovation and aging whip was able to create this this strong triangle this triforce of a toolbox that that anyone can apply if they wanted this idea of like a new experiment each sprint Mastering agility only works with organizations aligned with our values and that's exactly why we are excited to work with our sponsor Scrum Match is the free platform for professionals run by professionals. On Scrum Match, true Scrum Masters get hired by companies serious about the popular framework. The awesome people behind this platform have decades of experience, among them a professional Scrum trainer for Scrum.org. They have interviewed, trained and coached hundreds of like-minded people and they use this exact experience to make you stand out from the crowd and help you get in touch with companies looking for true Scrum Masters. So go to scrummatch.com and sprint to your dream job. So Fred, two, I have three questions, but let me hit you with the easy one first. Um, Cause you mentioned giving it a name had power. And this is something I am curious about because, uh, you know, I, through my work, I tend to like to have names. So what is the power of giving something a name and calling it the Triforce instead of having something like uh, three, three powerful metrics for you to keep track of? Or why would we tell a team to create a team name instead of just calling them like HR benefits team number seven? <laughs> well, what's your opinion or experience been with that? I'd love to hear from both of you. Because we're nerds and we like Zelda. Well, and that's what the cynics will tell you is that it's just fun. Have you seen it be more than fun? Yes. Um, I, the, the word Triforce in this particular instance, I'll say is something not everyone is familiar with, but it has try in the name, which from a triangle in English, so people can kind of wrap their mind around this rule of three. The thing I like about giving something a name is it gives a, a very clean way to talk about it with other people in such a way, like it's a new concept that everyone can learn together. No one has a preconceived notions around what is or isn't included in this thing because nobody knows it's up here. It's up here in my head and I'm sharing it with you. Um, you know, the comment about like, you know, Triforce versus three practices, you know, three practices to follow. I, that's probably a very good um, 
clickbait title for an article I should write at some point, three practices for predictive delivery. Uh, and it's going to probably draw a lot of the, the audience in. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, it's like anytime you can, with a team or an organization, um, speak the language of the tribe and I can introduce this in, this Triforce, um, it just, it makes conversations easier. It brings unity behind ideas. That's, I mean, those are my, my thoughts. What do you think, Sander? And I think uh, like one of those um, little lists, the three top books or the three best tips for, I don't know, doing probabilistic forecasting or whatever, uh, that works for articles because people's attention span seems to be a lot shorter for that. If you do that with talks at conferences, it hits different. And going back to Jim's hate for that term, um, but if people are going to be talking about what, for instance, just a regular conversation, what's the thing that stood out to you most? Like what, what talk stood out to you most or which one resonates with you best? It's going to be like, yeah, the th- top three of da, 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 da. it's too long. If you say the Triforce one, you're there, you're done. And then people immediately know what you're talking about. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, it, it's funny because last weekend I was walking through a gas station. I saw a headline that said, the state of Ohio has to remove the funny comments from road signs. So we have these signs over the highway here about drunk driving, and they they will sometimes make pop culture references. Well, the federal government stepped in and told the state that the ref the pop culture or humorous references on those signs needs to go or be turned turned down because not everybody gets the reference, or it could be alienating people, or it was missing the point, or whatever. Now look. I didn't read the article. I read the headline and I scanned the first paragraph. But I will tell you, as a as the th- to connect this to what we're talking about, it makes me realize stuff. It makes me stop. It makes me think. And the goal of those signs, because it's very easy for them to just blur past us and and not even register in our brain. But if you take a second to read it and chuckle, great. Now, if it's distracting and it's causing accidents or whatever, that's fine. Or if if it's some meta reference to Bane and, and the, the Black Knight and, and you miss the point, that's one thing, but that's not been my experience. And when I'm talking with teams, I will say, well, which thing sounds more interesting to you? What's gonna, like to your, your very first comment, Brett, about um, looking forward to work on Monday is, would you, go ra- would you rather go to work tomorrow at the, the team located at 1 East 161st Street in the Bronx? Or would you rather say, I'm a New York Yankee and I'm going to work at Yankee Stadium tomorrow? Like, So I think names and marketing and branding and all this for ideas and concepts have value. They might have value in helping people remember it. They might have value in helping people get motivated. They might help a team become a real team and have an identity and a personality and um, become its own entity instead of just a bunch of people who drive to the same building every day. Would you say that connects to the sense of purpose as well? Like marketing and, and being part of the Yankees, for instance, is that a sense of purpose? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I'm, I've never been a real athlete, but I got to think that. And if you watch interviews, you see people like there, there's a legacy, like this franchise, you know, creates and motivates you to do better, to want more. But literally, and it might sound stupid, but if we said the team located at 161st Street, eh, that may not build a legacy. 
but but wearing the jersey, wearing the hat, saying I'm I'm a member of the team called the Pioneers or the Avengers, or I'm on the uh, Scrum Dog Millionaires or whatever. That is that going to make a huge difference? Maybe, maybe not. No. But I know it likely can't hurt to feel like you're a part of a community and part of a group. I can imagine that for you, Fred. That's what I'm wearing, and I'm I'm rocking the Nike hoodie right now. I can imagine that's that's something for you that resonates as an Oregon as an Oregonian. <laughs> well, I've only been here for a couple of years, but yes, it does. So, Sunder, when you're talking with with clients, do you um, is helping teams get started and finding an identity something you do regularly or no? Um, you know what I'm going to refer to, Jim. What it depends. Yes. I will. I know it. Because sometimes they already have an identity, right? Then there's no need for me to really do that. Oh, sure. Um, also, if I feel like they're, they're, they're shaping their own identity, I'm not going to force that into it. Because I think it's a lot more powerful if they can find their own identity and, and self-manage into that without being uh, nudged into it by me as, a, as an external body to the team. It, it feels more natural if they do it themselves. Yeah, it- a hundred percent. And let's just state that, like, I am not suggesting we force this. I'm not suggesting that every time a coach or a consultant or a trainer starts with a group, they should reform. But if they don't have that, or they're brand new, or they're, they're maybe raising their hand and stepping forward and saying, we're struggling to be a cohesive unit. I have seen this be helpful far more often than I have seen it not be helpful. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm back. So Fred, now you're back. You, you've dealt with the dogs, which we can all um, have empathy for. So this is kind of like you saying, hey, I was a little nervous the first time, right? Like we've all been there. We've all had that noise behind us. So tell us about this cop- topic, though. Yeah. So getting back to I think where I left off, it was like an A-B test uh, almost uh, with with it being too nerdy, the tri, you know, Zelda's Guide to Agile, the Triforce of Predictive Delivery. Um, that hasn't been picked. That has not been picked up by a conference yet. And so, uh, for an upcoming one, I changed the title and and actually, I I just ran it this week. I call it now um, "Drop Velocity" and start using the Triforce of Predictive Delivery. So it still has that Triforce in there, but I think it's got that bigger bang. Drop Velocity. That's you see that on something, you're gonna be like, shit. What do I, I want to go to that thing? What is that? Mm-hmm. What is this? What is this maniac talking about? And he's not talking about hashtag no estimate, which is perfectly fine to talk about. It's different. And so we're going to see right. if that gets picked up a little bit more. It's the same same concept. It's just like how you bundle it. You know, it's like with product development. If the if the customers aren't buying it, um, I mean, you can continue to double down on your current strategy or you, or you can pivot. And so that's why I'm trying to take this one. Well, what I what I think you're why I think that title is good and what you're probably the bias and the marketing technique you're probably touching on is what I call the Howard Stern effect. You know, if you've ever seen the movie Private Parts and they ask why people listen and it's like, well, he has listeners that like him and then they he has a lot of listeners that don't like him, that hate him, like but they both say I want to see what he's going to say next. So, your title is probably pulling in the people who also dislike velocity and like flow metrics and want to see what they can learn from you around that. And you also might be pulling in the people who are like, well, I hold that other idea of velocity near and dear to my heart, or I believe in that, or I'm asked to do that every day. So I want to go see what this idiot's talking about because I disagree with him. You don't care because your goal as a speaker is to get him in the room and then show your brilliance and have a conversation. 
Yeah, and it's not just about convincing, right? Or to me, it's not even about convincing. I'm just there to to talk about my opinion, my experience, or whatever I want to talk about. I'm not there to convince you to buy my products or, I don't know. I'm just sharing my my opinion, and that's that's something that I admired about you last year, Fred. Is seeing how much you're just there to talk about how you live through it and what you see is useful in Jira. And and some people would hate Jira, and I'm one of those people that hates Jira. Uh, but I like the conviction that you, you bring with it and how much you can actually do with it and make connections uh, between them. So I really appreciate the voucher. Well, thank you. And one thing I'll say as a speaker, I do like my audience walking away with at least one thing, one idea or one thing they can try tangibly tomorrow. That's one of the things I challenge myself about is um, I know I've been to some talks, whether it's a you know keynote or a talk in a room, and there's nothing I can take away. I, I feel like that was interesting. But was it worth my time? And so if anyone comes to any of my talks, I, I hope whatever subject I'm talking about, they walk away with something they can try different at work on Monday. Yeah. And, you know, Dave Snowden mentioned those three groups of people, even at his talks is, you know, the, the group that hates you uh, and thinks you're full of shit, the group that loves you, and then everybody in the middle who's there to, to learn and take away nuggets. And I don't know if either of you have seen or ran the activity called ESVP, like explorers, shoppers, vacationers, and prisoners. So it's kind of about like, why are people in this event? Explorers, you know, they're out and they're just taking it all in and they're they're like in a quantity game. They want everything. You Then you've got your shoppers who are there to find some nuggets. They're there and maybe they're going to the store or your talk for a couple specific things and leaving with one nugget or one important thing is enough for them. You've got the vacationers who are like, well, at least I'm not at work today. I'm listening to Fred talk or, or Jim talk, so I'm not at work. And then you've got the prisoners who aren't really that common in like a conference setting because nobody should feel like they've got to be in Fred's talk at 1 p.m. Um, but the prisoners are those of people that are in meetings or events or things we're facilitating that really don't want to be there. And when I was doing a lot of work in Fortune 100 companies, I was running this quite a bit because I wanted to see, A, are people going to be honest and tell me if they truly are feeling like a vacationer or a prisoner? And B, I want to know where people are at so that I can kind of adjust um, a little bit and tweak my, my conversation and, and my topics a little bit. Fred, what would you say is the thing that prisoners could take away from your talk on uh, Zelda's Guide to Agile? <laughs> Ooh, I love this. Like, let's say, Fred, somebody doesn't want to be there. And here's the most common reason, Fred, that somebody's a prisoner at a conference, because I heard somebody tell me this. I didn't want to go to that, but my boss is going. So I feel like I have to go. So let's say you've got those people in there. So what That's a. What would you want a prisoner to take yeah, away from your talk? I would say, you know, the prisoner should be, you know, when we think back to the toolbox, um, I'd want them <clears> to feel empowered to with the law of two feet. And be able to move themselves out of the room. But if they're in that situation where like a coworker or a boss is there and they won't let them, um, <laughs> what I would want them to walk out of this talk with is just the thought how things could be different. Um, because if they pay attention for a few minutes and to like the backdrop of the story, they'll, hopefully they'll find some analogies and say like, okay, this isn't what the scrum guide says. This isn't what, what the safe website says. This isn't what everyone else says. This might be different. And it might give them that mental permission to think differently. Um, yeah. 
Mm. When you're at the front of the room, Fred, do you watch body language? And if somebody looks like they're either, I don't know, skeptical or disagree with you, will you will you ask them for a question? Will you I've call not it done out that or specific how one. do you handle I do that? watch for body language with uh are people sitting up in their chair, are they leaning back, are they looking at their phone? If they're in that leaning back, looking at their phone for like extended amount, um, mm. I will try to amp up the energy a little bit. Or if the great thing is usually in those, even if those audience of people disconnecting, they're active participants and mm. I'll lean into it for them because there are people that are the, truly excited about what you're talking about. Why not give them the best show? If someone else wants to tune out and I'm doing the best I can do, they have permission to tune out. But those couple people in the audience, who are locked into my eyes, I'm going to start pointing to them. I'm going to start referencing yeah. them. I'm going to start asking them questions. I'm going to make sure this is the best 45 minutes of their day. So they go, hell yeah. I love that. Bring Fred to many more conferences. <laughs> or have him come to my com company and talk to us. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not advocating people do this because, you know, if you watch YouTube or TikTok and watch stand-up comedians, you know, how they deal with hecklers. Like, I'm not saying that we should do that in our setting, but I am thinking, and the reason I asked the question is I was speaking at Scrum Day Philadelphia a couple of years ago and was talking about some of the type of things you're talking about where somebody, where I was kind of busting some myths, let's say. And I could visibly see this one woman in like the second row that she was, I couldn't quite tell if she was loving or hating what I'm saying. And I, it was a smallish room. I mean, we're not talking about a ballroom with 500 people. And I said, it looks like, man, like what I just said resonates with you. Do you have a, a comment? And she goes, I don't think that's right. And I said, okay. And we talked about it and we had a discussion and other people in the audience started saying, well, this is actually it. And it's this. And remember this. And and then the audience took. Now, I had to take back control, but it didn't get out of hand. But it was phenomenal in that setting because we started having a conversation. And then I started to do that a little more where I would say, a show of hands, this idea up here, this problem I'm talking about, has anybody dealt with this? A bunch of hands go up. I pick on somebody. And I'm like, tell us, how did this look for you? So the only reason I ask is, to say, I don't think that speakers, because we're talking a lot about scan agile and all that and content and the Triforce is you shouldn't try and convert everybody. Sunder mentioned it earlier, right? Like you're not there to convert, but knowing why you're there, I think is important. Like, are you, would you say, Fred, that you're there to educate? Are you there to motivate? Are you there to entertain? Have you thought about it? Maybe. I've consider the motivation part and that might be a place I go to in the future. But right now, like the talks that I generally do are more um, education based. And um, that's what I kind of want people to get out of it is because one powerful thing I had in my scrum journey, my agile journey, and I'll credit a lot of this to Vasco Duarte's podcast, Scrum Master Toolbox. It's all about storytelling. And when you tell a story, I can build empathy with that, with that, um, with that speaker, and I can see myself in that story, and then I can apply that potentially to, to my situation. And you know, as scrum masters, agile coaches, like being able to use metaphors and storytelling is a huge thing. And so, 
while they come at it from education, like here's some specific techniques or tools you can use, whether it's in Jira, Slack, or these uh, the Triforce, the idea behind it is um, I want them to hear the story behind the technique because then they could say, oh, I've dealt with something similar. I've seen a Gantt chart. Everyone in the audience should be able to say that. And then they start thinking about things a little bit differently. Nice. You you mentioned Vasco a couple times. So just for the audience, because um, you know we're equal opportunity around here, is if you haven't watched the Scrum Ma- or listened to the Scrum Masters Toolbox, highly recommend it. Um, I was on it a couple years ago myself, and I just remember it fondly. I remember it was probably the most structured podcast I've ever been on, and but I also enjoyed having to put a little bit of thought together. So for those of you who don't know, Vasco sends you some questions and he sends everybody the same kind of format. He's like, think about these things. And it's not really to get you to, to just get on the recording and read. It's to prompt you to think about your responses to things so that you're not thinking about them for the first time. And I just think that's, that's got a lot of power, but I also love every time I jump on the the recording with this guy in, in the Netherlands and he's like, let's talk about this. And I'm like, cool. So I think both have value and yeah. So just uh, the takeaway for me is for the audience is if you weren't aware of it, go look at, go look it up. And then I'm going to make a note for Sunder and I to see if we can get Vasco on here, because I think he has a lot to share to the community. I would love to. And I know that I can be like an unguided missile at times. Like, I don't know what we're going to talk about, but let's see. Again, the, the whole structure should feel like you're overhear- overhearing some people at a bar, right? Yeah. And I don't know about you, how you guys approach a bar, but I don't prepare my conversations in there either. No, I don't either. But, it, you know, it says something about you that I'm the organized one of the two of us. Because normally <laughs> I'm the, the shoot from the hip, let's just screw around and see where it goes type of guy. So what I'm saying, Hey, could we have maybe just a tiny little bit more structure? And that's why wonderful Marge is helping us. Um, it, it's just kind of funny to me to reflect that. I never thought I'd be the organized one. Not that I'm that organized, but like on a spectrum, I'm maybe one notch or two notches to the left of where you're at. Right. What's the smile about? I see a massive grin. What's your thought? There's a, it reminds me of this, um, like I'm very, I can be very structured at work with my approach to teams, with my approach to problem solving. Uh, but at work, uh, or sorry, at home, it's a little bit of of chaos. Um, and it reminds me of this: the saying, like the you know the uh, the shoe the was it the shoemaker's children have no shoes or the uh, um, there's the cobbler's kids cobbler's kids have no shoes um and so as i was here you all talk about that i was like you know i bet that i wonder if there's other elements in saunders life and jim's life where they are like extremely organized Uh, i'm getting there i have dreams of being organized he's been to my house so he'll tell you it's clean like you're not gonna you're, you're not gonna see dirt and grime everywhere but you know i got you know i'm disorganized if i turn the camera around on my desk you'd see post-it notes and couple coffee cups and some glasses and yeah um i clean through my house like a fucking whirlwind it's very unstructured it will get clean like very fast but no structure at all like i'm i'm in generally in life very unstructured yeah i would love to think fred that 
that behind Sunder, it looks so organized right now, but that if you go like six inches to all the edges, it looks like one of those YouTube TikTok farms in the middle of India where it's like, you know, cardboard boxes and lights everywhere in a warehouse. Yeah. Hold on. Hold on. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, there it is. A little bit, little bit of clutter. A little bit of clutter. So yeah, you know, like I had a client tell me recently, like your whole life must be in perfect order because you keep talking to us about our roadmap and backlogs and metrics and all this. I'm like, are you kidding? No, but yeah, it's slightly more in order. I got post-it notes. I, I get stuff done, and I do have things in order. But you know, it's certain parts of my life are chaotic. It doesn't mean just because I can do this in one work setting that I'm a genius and able to apply it everywhere else. So, um, well, let's wrap it up, gentlemen. Uh, I got to tell you, I like to end with something fun. So I'm going to ask each of you a question. What is the last thing that you learned not in the world of work that we're talking about? Oh my gosh, that's such a Stumper. Um, I guess the last thing I learned not in the world of work would be probably my 3D printer. Um, I've been spending years calibrating this 3D printer because uh, I've been on it for a while. And mm -hmm. there's a setting in there. It's called you. It's, it's Z, which is your up and down. I never realized that I could adjust that in the middle of a print to improve print quality. Nice. And just by knowing that, because every single time you print, things are slightly different and you can make that slight adjustment to improve the quality of your 3D prints. Nice. There you go. That's something for the audience. Bro, how about you? Um, I learned how much you can actually automate in Minecraft. My son is heavily into Minecraft. My son's turned nine next week. And there is so much more to that game that meets the, uh, let's say, the adult eye initially, because I'm not heavily invested in, in, in Minecraft. I play Call of Duty most of the time. But there is so much shit that you can do with Minecraft. It is amazing. And then he shows me all the stuff that he's doing. Like, how the hell did you find out? Hmm. That's awesome. It is. It's really cool to see how kids develop their cognitive skills and how they figure out and these discover this kind of shit without being instructed. Yeah. Like my nephew had a Minecraft server and I'm like, how the hell do you even know what a server is? He was like 11. He had a Minecraft server. Right. Anyway, uh, my answer uh, might hit close to home for you. I learned about the Netherlands history of cheese and cows and how impactful cows are to the environment over there. And it made me really hungry for what we call Gouda, but what you all call Hauda. And I'm going to have to give. Well done. Thank you. That's Duolingo really helping with my uh, my pronunciation. But yeah, I mean, I'm going to the store and I want to get some good Dutch howda this weekend. So there's a good YouTube video out there if anybody Cows wants to. Cows are awesome. Cows what? Cows are awesome. They are. They're a big part of your economy, it sounds like, from what I hear. All right. Well, let's wrap it up on talking about Z calibration, uh, Minecraft, and cheese, Dutch cheese and cow farts. Um, all right, everybody. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you. All right. Fred, thanks for being here. See you, Nelson. That is all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, let us know by hitting that like button, share it with friends and colleagues, sharing a message on LinkedIn. 
joining our warm and welcoming Discord community or attend recordings as a virtual audience. You can find all the relevant links in the show notes. We hope you'll tune back in for the next episode of the Mastering Agility podcast.